So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nick Rogers, and I am the family pastor here at CCF. It's a real honor and privilege to be here to bring God's word to you. Go ahead and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 2, will be mainly in verse 37 through 41. So, as you can see behind me, the title of our sermon series is called When We Gather. Eric was supposed to kick that off last week, but sadly he uh, went down sick, and so he was unable to do so. It was going to be on the Lord's Supper, so instead you get to hear the first one on baptism. So when I say the word baptism, lots of you have different things that come to mind when I say that. It may immediately spark things that are fun for you, or hard for you, or something you're considering. Or you could be along with uh, Nacho Libre, and famously, who in his movie said, you must be baptized. Or maybe not. There's only probably a few of you that have seen that movie. But you may have, again, personal joy when you think about your baptism. You had your family, friends, great memories. You may be convicted, but you haven't been baptized yet because you're scared or afraid. Or maybe you have deep baggage with baptism. and You think you've been hurt by that in the way that it's been done or taught in churches. There could be some of you here who are confused because you've never thought about baptism. You've never even considered what it could mean or how the Bible even approaches it. Maybe you're confused because this is the first time you've ever been in a Christian church and you walked into the baptism sermon. I'd understand. You're a little scared. There may be one or two of you here who believe that you were saved when you were baptized. Or maybe you were saved when you were baptized as an infant. Or maybe you were baptized as an infant just as a symbol, as a sign of a covenant community. And you were confirmed later of that baptism. Finally, there could be some of you here today who think baptism is a really silly thing for us to talk about this morning. The church just makes too big of a deal of it, and I don't want to talk about it. That could be you. I pray it's not, but if it is you, I'd love for you to listen a little closer this morning. So my goal, here's my goal. My goal today is honestly, honestly is not to win an argument or to bash other perspectives on baptism. My goal, and our goal this morning, is to talk about why baptism is something we do at CCF when we gather together as the church body. So this serves to remind our church, us, of why we baptize the way we see in Scripture. And my goal, again, is to remind you, encourage you, and for some to tell you about why we baptize the way we do. So with that, let's read Acts 2, verses 37 through 41. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter said, and, the re- and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word 
were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. This is God's word. And so to approach it the best way we can and to get the most out of this text, I think we need to back up and get the context of Acts as a whole and then chapter 2 and then into our text. So you may have noticed there's a big now in my notes. I have it bolded. It's huge. But maybe not in your Bible. But that's a very important word because it means something came before. You may see that at the beginning of verse 37. That's because a lot has come before that. There are a lot of things for us to consider so that we get the right um, information from the text. So we're going to put it in context. Well, Acts was written by a man named Luke. Luke was not an apostle. That surprised me as a 23-year-old when I heard about that for the first time. No, he was a disciple and traveling companion of another apostle called Paul. Luke is commissioned by a man named Theophilus. Excellent Greek name. So if you were really looking for baby names, there you go, Theophilus. To write an orderly account of all that Jesus began to do and preach in his gospel, which we now refer to as the gospel according to Luke, which is also written by him and for a man named Theophilus. So this is a continuation of that story with a focus on the coming of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit going out and the church being born, as we just sang in King of Kings right before this. So that's the foundation. We're seeing the foundation that the apostles are laying for the churches and that the gospel would go out to the ends of the earth in power. So as we read to be at the beginning of chapter 2, so if you, now you put your eyes at the beginning of chapter 2, you may see a header saying, the coming of the Holy Spirit, or the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost actually didn't start that day. It was originally a Jewish festival called the Feast of Weeks. And now, because of that, it takes on a whole new significance. And so that's for free. That was just a little side, little data point there for you, just so you could have that. But Pentecost obviously takes on a brand new, big significance for the church, for them and for us today. So on this day in Acts 2, we see that Jesus sends the helper, as he refers to it in John 14, or the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, God. We can see, if you were to read the whole of Acts, all the way through, which I encourage, it's actually a great read, the Holy Spirit comes in power. In multiple places. And that is a sign. The Holy Spirit refer, like, appears to them in this situation as flaming tongues that settle on their heads. And they, it allows them to be able to speak in different languages, which is going to be important here in a second. Also, just for adding on to that, there's a mighty rushing wind filling the building. And it's so loud and so obvious that it gathers a crowd outside of the building. So... I lost my place. All right, so as we read a little bit further down, that was very important. It's very important that we see these things because there are people from everywhere in Jerusalem this day for the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And this is important because we see in chapter 2, verse 8, what God does. So let's read that. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own language? These are the people speaking that heard the mighty rushing wind, and then they're talking to them about, they're preaching to them. It says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia 
and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Basically, everywhere that you could think of, people were coming for this feast. Both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes are those that have conferred, they were a different religion and came to Judaism. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said, they're filled with new wine. So we can see the sovereignty of God, right? We see God bringing together this massive group, group of people from all over the world. And I don't think we're meant to... We're meant to see that. We're meant to understand that because it really connects with Matthew 28. So let's read Matthew 28 together. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And we see that they're already in Jerusalem. Right? So there's the continue to go, but it's happening right here too. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. Jesus is delivering on what he was promising to his disciples. The Holy Spirit came in power, the helper came, and the, the good news of the gospel was being spread. So as we continue through chapter 2, Peter begins preaching. So don't miss that. Peter begins by saying what everyone is experiencing is actually the culmination of the Old Testament, specifically what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And so we see the last part. I'm not going to read the full section. It's a really large section, but I want to get to the end of it. It's really important. So he talks about the Holy Spirit coming. It's going to come on all flesh, all believers. In verse 21, don't miss this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved so what a powerful ending quote from the old testament in joel god was doing the work right then he's still doing it today and that's something we need to understand is that joel prophesied it hundred years before jesus said confirmed it and was promising it yet again and it came here in acts 2 so as we continue we see that peter unpacks an incredible sermon and he uses the old testament to confirm Jesus as the Messiah, or the Savior, or the promised one that the Old Testament was leading to all the way back in Genesis 3. So the Messiah had come. And then we get to this text, Acts 2, 36. Please read it with me on the screen or in your Bible. It's very important you see it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So they ask, in verse 37, which is going to be our first point, what must we do? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? That is the appropriate response to God's word. In the preaching of God's word, if you are here and you have never believed in Jesus Christ, you must ask, what must I do? They had been culpable 
or they were charged, or they were apt, they were, culpable is a good word, hopefully you understand that word, in the murder of the Son of God. They murdered him. No, they weren't the ones that actually put the nails in his hands. But they were the ones that stood in the crowd shouting, crucify him. And even saying things like this, his blood be on our hands. But obviously they were wrong. They would rather have a murderer, Barabbas, than the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. The third member of the Trinity speaks in this text. And it cut them to the heart. You killed the son of God. But he offers you salvation and forgiveness and mercy and grace. So I'm begging the person who is sitting here today that has completely just pushed God away. You have never understood God. You have never trusted in Jesus Christ. The word, the Holy Spirit is speaking through this text. And it must cut you to the heart. Or said another way, you must respond to what the word of God says about your condition. Which I hate to inform you is bad. You're a sinner. You're culpable. You're guilty of sin against the holy God. And the real question is, do you see it? Do you see your sin? Do you see that you're no different from this crowd who shouted crucify him? And I hope you see your condition because I pray and I know that the Holy Spirit is active and working right now. So first, we must be cut to the heart by your need for, to be saved by Jesus. Second, what should you do? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's break this text down. The first thing we must do after we are cut to the heart is repent. And that's a Christianese word that we do not define a lot. And you may not understand. So let's think, let's think about it. Let's go to a definition. Charles Spurgeon writes this. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin. A mourning that we have committed it and a resolution to forsake it. It is exactly what we see played out in Acts 2. It is in fact a change of mind of a deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. In their case, they hated Jesus. They must now love him. Repent of your sin and turn to God. Church, very much I need you to listen to this particular point. Repentance is not just feeling sorry for what you did. Repentance is not feeling sorry for our sins. That's just called feeling sorry. Repentance has in mind the confession of sin and the seeking to lead a life pursuing God. Not the sin. By his power, he gives you the gift to follow him by repentance. And so, therefore, we get to the next part. The next part of the sentence, and this is important that you track with me, because it says, I don't believe this is salvation, part of what saves a person. But it is important because it comes in the sentence together. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So baptism is the next thing. 
As I told you, our goal at the beginning is to be reminded or encouraged about what we do at CCF when we gather together. So I think it's important, as I begin to think about this text with you, is reading CCF's statement on baptism. So we believe that baptism is a joyous response and public act of obedience to signify and celebrate the personal saving work of God. You notice, and I think this is true, if we took all of the New Testament's teaching on baptism, you're going to find out that it does not save you. Paul is very clear on what saves a person. It is grace by faith in Jesus Christ. So baptism then is a celebration or an obedient walk to signify and celebrate the personal saving work of God in the individual. Baptism is an ordinance. All that's a fancy word for saying that we have tangible elements. So this is why it would have been nice if Eric was first because the Lord's Supper, you would have taken it last week, right? So you have the bread and the wine, tangible elements of what we do together. Now you have baptism too with water. It's a physical representation of an inward reality. So that's what an ordinance is, and it's ordained or it's commanded. So baptism is an ordinance of the Lord Jesus, wherein the believer is immersed in water in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a sign of fellowship with the death and resurrection of Christ. It symbolizes the cleansing of sins through the gracious sacrificial atonement of Jesus. And it demonstrates godly surrender to live and walk in newness of life and you have unity with the local church. So we believe, again, baptism demonstrates what has taken place inside of the person. So Bobby Jameson says this, and I think it reflects in this text really well. After trusting in Christ, baptism is the first thing faith does. It's how faith shows itself before God, the church, and the world. Baptism is where faith goes public. It's a public profession. That's why Peter calls it out. It's something that the church is to practice and do when you believe and repent in Jesus Christ. So real briefly, let's talk about our mode real fast. I think it's important because it's in the statement, and I think it's here as well. Wherein the believer is immersed in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Greek word in this text for baptism and every other subsequent text in the New Testament is baptizo, or to be submerged underwater. Therefore, since it's exactly how the word is translated, and we see it consistent with how Jesus was baptized, and how in Acts it was used in baptism, and then also in every other text that is in the New Testament, it, it is, we, that's why we immerse in water the way that we do, because it's all there. We get it from Scripture. And that's why we, we spent so much money <laughs> on a baptismal, because we want it. We want you to see the tangible elements right, of baptism. So we want to be reminded weekly of it. So second, let's get to, or third, let's get to the promise, verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. All right, church, we're going to get into some stuff here. So some take this passage to mean, Nick says right there, you and your children. Yes, it does. But the passage is not talking about only baptism. It's also talking about salvation. There are at least four other passages in Acts that use the same language of households being baptized. But to impact what I'm saying, look with me and just track with me real quick. The promise mentioned here 
at the beginning of verse 39 is connected to the end of verse 39. You can't disconnect those two things. So look with me at the end. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself shall have the promise of salvation. So you read that. So every other account in Acts shows us something similar. There's preaching, there's public ministry, they're preaching the word, calling people to repent. That's what's happening there. And then we also see in Acts that there's mainly two people that are, are involved. It's Peter and Paul in the book of Acts. And in those cases, people repented and believed. And in some cases, it also adds they were filled with the Holy Spirit as confirmation of their salvation. And then they were baptized. So church, and I love when pastors call their church their beloved, because it's true. My beloved, the people I love the most in my life. This is why we practice believer's baptism when we gather as the church. I pray you see the importance of why we add the testimonial piece as well. If you can remember most of our recent baptisms, they were incredibly encouraging. The church is so encouraged and stirred on to be evangelistic. It's enough to make a Baptist want to hoot and holler, right? Because we are excited about what God is doing through baptism because it shows us that people are repenting and turning to Jesus Christ. And also, for those of you in your families who are doing the hard work of discipleship and sharing the gospel with your kids, you're seeing the fruit of this too. God is going to build his church, and he is at work in this church. And that's why we baptize believers. And the most important thing is it's commanded, and it's right here in the text. So we are blessed, we are happy, we are encouraged, we are stirred on when we observe it and do it. It's not something that adds to salvation. I just want to, that's a great qualifier. It does not save you. Baptism does not save you. It's a fruit of salvation. It's the first step, the public step. So God is calling church. That's an important thing to take away from this text too. He promised and he is calling. And people, church, this is important, will repent when the word is preached. They will repent and believe because he promised to save and impart the Holy Spirit on all believers and he's building his church. And it happened to then, it happened with Peter and the apostles, and it is happening today. We are to call out the word as Peter did and pray in the power of the Holy Spirit that he would work in, in the hearts of, of the lost and they would repent and then they would be baptized as a sign of that faith. So here's my last point to kind of wrap up some of the arguments I started in here. So don't miss this. Look at verse 41. Look at the clarification on who is baptized. So those who received his word were baptized. Church, it's those who receive. That's why we baptize believers. That's why we've made a stand on that, because we see it in these texts. So my last point, the promise is kept. Verse 40 through 41. Look with me. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
church, Peter kept preaching. He kept proclaiming. And the crooked generation he's referring to in this text is the ones and the Jews who killed and shouted, crucify him. And they rejected Jesus Christ and they would rather have a murderer than the son of God. And they rejected Jesus as the savior of the world. That's the crooked generation he's talking about. Flee that generation. Come and repent and believe. And I think we can make some implications from this. No, we aren't the generation that crucified Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, we are a generation that rejects Jesus Christ. We are a world who does not want the Savior in this body. The Savior that has been handed down from generation to generation, this word, this preaching, this proclamation. So my, my plea for you is stop following a world that hates Jesus Christ. You are here. I know it. You would rather have the world than Jesus. Stop with that flow and repent and turn and save yourself from the crooked generation. Repent and be saved. Repent, be saved, and then talk to us and be baptized. Let's practice what we see. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Praise God, church. We keep wanting a day of Pentecost, but we won't preach. We won't tell. 3,000 souls is a lot of souls. God saves souls. How are they to hear? There is no preacher. It comes by the word, right? By somebody telling them the word of God. And so we're meant to see the encouragement that I think Luke was going for here. He's telling, him, he's telling Theophilus, the Holy Spirit really did come. God was still continuing to work even through the resurrection of Jesus. He sent the Holy Spirit, and then the church is going forward in power to the Holy Spirit. Remember, Theophilus, Christ has come. The church is being built. and You can take courage and confidence. So for you today, my beloved brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit has come and is here currently, convicting you of sin, those of you who have never believed. But he's encouraging and correcting the believers. He's, in, he's giving you grace and mercy this morning. He's here. But the real question is, are we listening? Are we hearing what he's saying? So I'm going to end with three pleas or three applications. The first one is this. If you're not someone who has believed and repented in Jesus Christ, do that today. Why wait? When the good news is so good. Salvation and mercy and grace await you. But I'm going to read from Charles Spurgeon. He's going to be a little harder than me. That's, that's Spurgeon for you. He's really good. 
I'm going to read two quotes, one here and then one in the next point. So just get ready for a little bit of it. But he's so good, and he's teach. This is his sermon on this text, and I just thought his plea to people was so important. He's talking to the unbeliever. You have never confessed your sin before him, nor sought pardon at his hands, nor have you looked to see whether he hath borne your sins in his own body on the tree. O oh soul, this is base neglect and ungrateful contempt. God thinks so much of his son that he cannot set him too high. He has placed him at his own right hand, and yet you will not spare him a thought. The great God thinks heaven and earth too little for him, and magnifies him exceedingly above all as king of kings and lord of lords. And yet you treat him as if he were of no account. And might be safely made to wait your time and your leisure. Is this right? Will you treat your Savior thus? May this cut you to the heart. And may you cease from your base ingratitude. That's harsh. But the reality of the gospel is it tells us what we need. And the great mercy of God is that Jesus, the one whom you have rejected, is the very person who has come to die for your sins and makes a way. And you will receive no condemnation. You will receive no wrath. You will receive grace and his mercy. What a gift. And you receive the Holy Spirit. So good. Two, maybe you're a believer here this morning. You've never been baptized as a believer. I would just ask, can please consider why you wouldn't. Jesus and the apostles confirm this. I and others would love to talk you through it. You may be afraid. You may be scared of standing up here and giving a testimony. Church, we want to work with you. We want to make this available to you. We want to help you get there. I will just tell you, it's the most anxious, terrified, and scared people that I find the most encouragement from. It always makes me want to just get excited about what God is doing. And you'll get to be that too. It's for our encouragement. It's for lifting up the body of Christ. It's our first public step. And I just want to encourage you, what Spurgeon says, he's very helpful, uh, here, just to get you excited. Then Peter said, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Take the open and decisive step. Stand forth as believers in Jesus and confess him by the outward and visible sign which he has ordained. Be buried with him in whom your sin is buried. You slew him in error, be buried with him in truth. They did it gladly. They repented of the sin. They were baptized into the sacred name. And don't forget, I thought about, I didn't think, I didn't forget about the third group. Maybe you are a believer and you have been baptized. You're an ambassador for the king. You are to go and tell the good news and the power of the Holy Spirit with a promise from God that he will save sinners. That's our job. 
And it's a good job. It's a glorious job. And we know that God does the work. We just are willing vessels to go out and proclaim something so good. So ask, why aren't you doing that? What's stopping you from doing it? Let's go and be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And then when we gather together and they come to faith in Jesus, we'll baptize them. We'll be encouraged. Let's pray.